what I endeavor to do is talk to you about wisdom. And you can read the title. By wisdom, a house is built. That's my title, and there is a scripture for that. But I do want to speak about wisdom, and it's always something that's interesting for me to even contemplate doing. I've thought about doing preaching about wisdom, and you'd like to think that somebody who preaches about wisdom is wise, which is pretty daunting for me to say, yeah, I'm wise. And wisdom is so big, it is so amorphous, and sad to say, it is quite unobtainable. When people think about wisdom, I think that I probably put myself in that category, that wisdom in and of itself is tough for me to even contemplate. What does that mean? What does it look like? How do I go about this? And I hope to answer some of those questions for you today. Really quick, what is wisdom? Right, this is just something that I know we think about it, but it can be said that wisdom gives us counsel in every situation to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. That sounds pretty good to me. I want that. And if you probably have paid attention and you just live in your life, you're doing your business, you have your family, and you're doing your thing, I think regardless of what walk of life you're in, what your background is, I think you can probably have felt this but may not be able to put words to it. But probably emblematic of your life of what you think about is the level of uncertainty in your future has probably increased. And coincidentally, the margin for error has decreased. I think most people can ascribe that. Why do I say that? Because the level of anxiety in this world has increased. The level of pharmaceuticals has increased to help you cope with the anxiety. And this just happens to be the culture in the world that we live in. Uncertainty increased, margin of error decreased, level of anxiety increased, pharmaceutical increase. So wisdom, I think we all can say we want more of that, we need more of that, we recognize that that should be something that becomes part and parcel of our everyday decision making. And everybody, I would say, if I were to ask and poll, and I, I'm not going to do so, but I'd say, well, do you value wisdom? And everybody would absolutely say, I value wisdom. But not many would actually, if they were to be honest, would say, I actually pursue wisdom. So there's a disconnect there. And in part, it's because of the reality of how do I actually do this thing? So the obtainability of wisdom, I think, is a roadblock, and that's what I hope to address. Because... It is in the heart of God, which I'll get to. But we're going to go in a process. So let's talk about wisdom. But there's this thing called worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom is interesting because we live in the world and the world has its ways and the world has its system. And we, are, we grow up in it. It's being pushed upon you daily if you didn't realize that. And I just looked up in a dictionary. So what is wisdom? It can be said it relates to insight, ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. It's about judgment, having a good sense. It's about knowledge, accumulated philosophical or scientific learning. This is what the dictionary says. Merriam-Webster looked it up online. But the key issue of wisdom in the worldly system is that it's largely recognized as something that you acquire through experience or some form of education. So gray hair, obviously 
has some value and it's generally associated and it's a proxy for wisdom because if you lived long enough, you've walked through a lot of situations and you've grown in wisdom. Why? Because you've made more mistakes. So you understand what not to do and by implication maybe what you should have done and that becomes wisdom. But it's largely something that you acquire over time which is why when you're young and you say, well, how do I get wisdom? Surely don't tell me make more mistakes. That doesn't sound attractive. So again, Bible or not, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Okay, so there's that. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. So that's worldly wisdom. So what's godly wisdom? First of all, godly wisdom, what can we say about it? I like to be, as you probably know about me, I'm pretty basic. I deconstruct things. I look at it in its most basic form because those are typically the hinges by which doors swing. Large impact by very little changes in your perspective and thinking. So what's godly wisdom? Well, first of all, it is from God, who is spirit. That's godly wisdom. So in the world system, in the worldly wisdom, as Clay already made mention, your soul, mind, will, and emotions, that's largely the seat of your rational thinking. That's the trainer. What you need to do if you have worldly wisdom, you would train that, your mind, by education, your will, discipline, and your emotions, you know, all under sort of cooperating in the seat of your rationality. And to grow in worldly wisdom, all those things are good to train that up, but that takes time. But godly wisdom is now separate that because your soul should be in subject to your spirit. So it's now outside of your rational man. So you can see now, we're talking about a different realm, that godly wisdom is something that is given to you outside of your rational man, and it just happens to be there. So let's talk about that. We're going to have a bunch of scriptures that we're basically reading the Bible mostly. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's speaking of the sevenfold spirit of God. In a sense, you could say it's personalities of the spirit. It's a single spirit, but it's different manifestations of the spirit. And that's what rested upon Jesus. So Jesus operated in the spirit of wisdom. And there is much talk in the church and emphasis, and I'm becoming increasingly unimpressed by it, by the way, about the gifts of the spirit. Not that I don't like it, not that I don't value it, not that it's not in the Bible, it's in the Bible. But one of the gifts of the Spirit is word of wisdom. Jesus didn't operate in the word of wisdom. Jesus operated in the spirit of wisdom. And to understand that is to understand, I believe, the intention of God for you when you even contemplate this idea of wisdom because a word of wisdom is a gift, which means it's just given to you. You didn't actually do anything for it, just given to you. But Jesus operated in the spirit of wisdom which is an altogether different concept. And the way you need to understand that is that godly wisdom defies the boundaries of conventional earthly wisdom. So I have a picture up here to illustrate this. If you can imagine, it's just marbles, but if you can imagine an endless ocean of marbles, 
And if he were to give you one, that's a word of wisdom. But the spirit of wisdom is the ever-increasing flowing river of wisdom from the one who possesses all wisdom. And you can imagine if you've actually been given a word of wisdom, and it's so unbelievable because it allows you insight into a situation totally apart from your rational thinking that all of a sudden you just realize, I know exactly what needs to be done right here, right now, in this situation. And you don't know where it comes from, but she's like, no, I know this is what we need to do. And that's a word of wisdom. It's like one, a single marble in an endless ocean of marbles. And we can get excited about that because it has real impact, but in the context of a spirit of wisdom, wholly unimpressive. And that's actually available to you. In your life of increasing uncertainty with reducing margin for error, everybody would say, I need that. It's not good enough for me to have a word of wisdom for this day. I need a continual stream of access to the spirit of wisdom for daily to know exactly what to do in the context of my job, my family, all those that I'm in authority for. How much more so do I want to open myself to access to that? That's godly wisdom. See, this is what rested on Jesus. And if you were to actually read the Gospels with this in mind, that this is what he operated, your lens by which you viewed what he did would actually change. This is not fleeting or temporary. This is just how he walked. And I would be telling you something that's not in the Bible if I told you this wasn't accessible to you. This is. So, why should you care? Well, I hope you can answer that question by now. See, everybody cares about wisdom at the point of decision. Why? Because you've been in authority, which you are for your life, or your family, or your company, then you know that the decisions that you make, either good or bad, will bear consequences. And that's why I've talked to many people in different situations that decisions are painful because you could get it wrong. Yes, you can. And if you get it wrong, people pay. You get it right, people benefit. And I, as I've told my family, if you want to lead, that's the reality. You can't escape it. So, interestingly enough, as I said, I'm just living my life, I look around and I find things that interest me, things that capture my attention. And this is the world we live in, that the consequences of your decisions actually often, for many instances, paralyze people. And oftentimes they'd rather have a decision be made by omission, an act of omission, which is I'm not going to make a decision until a decision made for me, then I can sort of say, well, you know, it kind of just happened. That's not God. So today I look around as this rise of coaching. You can get a coach for everything. I think you realize that. I find I've actually been a coach. One of the most fascinating exercises of authority ever, especially with kids. But you can get a career coach. You can get a life coach. You can get a relationship coach. You can get a nutritional coach. I didn't realize this was a thing, by the way, that you can get a neuro-linguistic programming coach. 
NLP coach. I didn't know this was a thing. And what is this? Techniques to improve your thinking, communication, and behavior. I'm thinking, well, isn't that what parents do? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't even know this was a thing. I'd like to think I've taught my kids how to think, how to communicate, how to behave. And yet, apparently, I don't know, it's, that's on you. But that's the level of, in a sense, a lack of mooring, if I could put it that way, that many people, they're floating out there and they're just in a sea of uncertainty and they don't know what to do. So, oh, phone a coach. Somebody's got to help me make decisions, help me to think correctly. So within the NLP coaching, you can get certified for this, by the way. You can have subspecialties as an emotional intelligence coach, a mind adjustment coach. By the way, I'm doing that right now, by the way, just so that you know. I'm very upfront about these things. But here's the thing. This is the world system. The world system pushes dependence on a mediator. That's what concerns me. Yes, coaches are valuable. Yes, counseling and perspective is valuable. But to the degree that you've absolved your personal responsibility in a situation and actually look to the coach, to the one to actually make the key decisions to direct you in your life, that is never, never has been in the mind of God. Just look around. That's what I see. So what's God's intention? Just reading the Bible. Romans 12, verse 2. It's actually been a theme. Do not be conformed to this world. I think if you just thought about that a little bit, you would actually have to look around as, what does it mean to be conformed to this world? What is the world trying to get me to conform to? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does the world want you to conform yourself to? Next, John chapter 14, verse 16. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is Jesus' prayer. The world cannot accept him, Jesus. But he says he had to go so that he could send another counselor to be with you. And in verse 18, is very interesting because it speaks of intention. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. See, that word orphans in the Greek, it's orphanos. Sounds familiar. There's a transliteration of the English based upon this Greek word orphanos, which is, we know what an orphan is. Someone who's fatherless. And interestingly enough, there's only two instances of this word being used in the New Testament. And the second is in James 1, verse 27, which says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Well, first of all, not many people, when I use the word religion, I was going to say, well, that's pure and faultless. 
but this is what is considered pure and faultless from a religious perspective to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world so it is not a stretch for me to say that when God says in John chapter 14 that he had to go to, so that he could send another counselor to be with you and that the intention of this is that you will not be orphans that is as good as an expression as I can understand of God's intention for you in your life not to be unmoored in a sea of uncertainty, but to actually have a surety of a counselor with you daily by the Spirit so that you would not be an orphan and fatherless. That's God's intention for you. He never intended for you to walk alone. So what is God's model design? That's his intention. How does this work itself out? So this struck me. I was obedient to Clayton. Not that I try to be disobedient. I bring my Bible to church, right? And he's encouraging you to read a physical Bible. Why? Because sometimes you don't find what you're looking for. You find what you need. So I'm just reading the Bible. I said, not, by the way, not that I don't read a physical Bible. I do. But I was reading through Proverbs and, and this caught my eye and I've been grinding on this for a couple of weeks and it's Proverbs chapter 24 verse 3 which is where the title of the sermon came from it says by wisdom a house is built and through understanding it is established through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures and it's captivated me because I just because like you I think about wisdom and I think I don't understand. I want to grow in wisdom. I want to see the benefit of wisdom in my life because I want to make good decisions in situations that I know I have incomplete knowledge and cannot see. So how do you do this thing? And I say, God, you have to show me. And this text has jumped off the page to me and I just stopped there. Because, you see, nothing in this little short passage is offensive. I think at some level we would all agree. But there's so much more to that because it's very actually practical. Because when it speaks of a house, and if you actually were to look at in the Amplified Bible, your house is not obviously a physical house, but it speaks about a life a home, a family. That's the house that it's talking about. So by wisdom, a life is built. By wisdom, a family is built. By wisdom, a business is built. How does this work? I mean, we know Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain know that. Check. That's Bible. But when I think of a house, I think I'm not a builder as in I build houses for a living, but I like to build. 
and there's certainly foundation, but there's principles. And I imagine a house, if you were to just think of the specific analogy of a house, a physical house, and there's a support structure within a house. And I think of that, and I think of, you know, support beams, you know, load-bearing walls. And I think of everything that holds up the house, and God's system is in a similar way. You know, there are design principles that God uses in the context of his kingdom by which everything hangs. And I'm not talking about commandments per se, but there are fundamental principles of the kingdom. So I look in Psalm 89, verse 14, and this is what it says. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. This is speaking about some of the support structures, load-bearing walls, if you will, of what anything can be built upon. Because if his throne is built on the foundation of righteousness and justice, surely your life ought to be as well. And that's the house that he has for you. You know, Proverbs 2, verse 9 says, speaking about wisdom, then you will understand what is right, just, and fair, every good path. Dare I say, if you want to build a family, if you want to build a life, that right there will go a long way as a support structure upon which everything hangs. Proverbs 3, verse 3 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. These are support structures, if you will. Principles. So that's the house. That's the house that God has for you. Be it your life, be it your family, be it your home, be it your business. So Proverbs 24 continues on, says, through understanding it is established. Just reading the Bible, we know the parable of the wise and foolish builders. And I'm just going to read that and just make some comments here. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 it says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash nobody wants that so it, it juxtaposes the wise and the foolish builders and both are building a house and implicit in this, it's the same house. Nowhere in this is it saying that the house is somehow different. That the house that the wise man endeavors to build and the house that the foolish man endeavors to build, it's the same house. The same principles, the same support structures, the same load-bearing walls, everything that you would build to hang off of in this house, it's the same house that God has. And the only difference between the wise and the foolish man is that one puts the words into practice and the other does not. Same house. I find that interesting. 
Same house, same principles. One accepts and applies to his life. The foolish man cannot accept and does not apply. The application is the tell of whether you're putting into practice. Why? And I hope you can accept this as a truism because everybody talks about faith and you can be very religious about it. People do what they believe. That's as simple as I can put most. If you want to grade yourself out on whether you have faith, whether you have accepted something, and now as part of your belief system, look at what you do. And that's effectively what it's saying here. Same house, same principles. I'll use an example. I think nobody would argue with the fact that I ought to be right, just, and fair in my dealings. Nobody. Unless you really wanted to take a position and be an outlier, you're going to say, I I, of course, right, just, and fair. Absolutely. I'm all in on that. Well, let's look at what you do. And that will dictate whether you actually have accepted it and have now applied it, i.e., you believe it. And that's all this parable of the wise and foolish builders is saying. There is a house that God has constructed for you by his word based upon principles of his kingdom. And the only difference between the wise and the foolish is in terms of whether it's actually built on a foundation is whether it's been put into practice. In other words, do you believe? That's it. There's no other qualification or distinction between the wise and the foolish. How do you believe? How do you believe anything? You don't just, aside of a word of faith, or a gift of faith, right? Where it's just, you just, you didn't do anything, you just believe, right? Aside from that, in most people's lives, the process of belief is a process, a process, a process. You have to work things through. See, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 says this. So that your ear is attentive to skillful and godly wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, seeking it conscientiously and striving for it eagerly. Understanding, because through understanding it is established. The process of understanding is building your belief system. I can preach and preach and preach and you have a choice whether you believe why you have to work it through. You have to judge the words and decide for yourself, does this something that I will ascribe as something that I will build on in my life? You have to go through that process. And sadly today, there are too many impediments and distractions that hinder understanding. And you know what I mean. Because the world system, as I said, is pushing you to coaches. But the world system... I said, if you just, just think about it, just a little bit. One of the parables is a sower. And the seed gets sown, awesome seed, can produce much of a crop in good soil, and why did it not produce? Weeds, distractions, choked it out. That's exactly what the world is doing today. If you were to be honest and assess what is actually bombarding your mind the entire, it's like, you don't have to try. The world's going to do it for you. The world is actively seeking 
to overwhelm and bombard your mind so that you don't have time to think. Media, social media, all designed so that you don't actually spend the time to think. It's a very good and effective method of mind control. See, Blaise Pascal, philosopher, mathematician, said this, all the trouble in the world is due to the fact that man cannot sit still in a room. This man, I can absolutely say, is way beyond me. And he distilled the essence of the issue into a somewhat pithy statement, but actually hits to the absolute core of the issue. That most people will do everything they can to avoid being in a room alone. Why? Because you're there. Just you. Which means that everything that you don't like about yourself, you have to deal with. Everything about your life that you're not happy with, you have to confront. You. Or in my room, it's me. Can I phone a coach, phone a friend? No, it's just you. I came across Actually, I was down at my son's graduation and we had a commencement speech and they made reference to a book which I, I bought because I just loved the idea. Everything you need to know, you learned in kindergarten. I bought it, read it, not finished it. Fantastic book. You know, one of the things that you learned in kindergarten that I'll repeat to you here, take a nap every afternoon. I wish I could say this was my wisdom. It's not. But it's the same thing as Blaise Pascal. Every, all the troubles in the world is due to the fact that man cannot sit still in a room. And here you learn in kindergarten, take a nap every afternoon. Spend some time by yourself. Settle in. And as you're lying down and getting comfortable, well, guess what? It's just you. And your problems and your insecurities, and your issues, and your fears, and your anxieties. And you can't go to sleep and take a nap until you deal with it. Take a nap every afternoon. Sound advice. It is through that process that you will know what you believe. And if you don't know what you believe, you will never be established in understanding. That's the principle of the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Lastly, through knowledge, back to Proverbs 20, through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. That word knowledge, that root word is based on intimacy. This is not information. This is not facts, figures, something you read out of a book, based on intimacy. It's intimate knowledge of him. You see, if you go through this process and you decide, huh, by wisdom a house is built, okay, to 
through understanding it is established and you take a nap every afternoon and as you settle down and you think this through and so every area of your life see this house has many rooms there's that room called family life there's your study business life there's your bedroom your life every room And in every room, there's always the potential for you to pro- apply this process. And if, you, if you're willing to spend time by yourself and you actually start to confront these issues, well, guess what? It's hard. Because I start off by saying uncertainty in your life has increased, margin for error has decreased. You don't know the future. The decisions you make are going to impact many people, not the least of which is you, and most people can't deal with that. But yet, you have to make a decision. Be it your family, your business, your very life. And you suffer through that. And you persevere through that. And you find God in that. Not a God of theory, but a God as in in an intimate relationship What you find in that process is you see God as he truly is. It's just you now. There's no coach, nobody to tell you to stroke your hair and say it's going to be okay. As much as we would all like that, it's God. And when you get to the most intimate part of your life, facing every fear and anxiety and making decisions grounded in your understanding of trust, you will find God as he truly is. This is not theory anymore. This is not the God that you can, you know, pick up in a flyer. This is the God that has meaning into your personal life to the degree that you are changed. And when you go through that process, seeing God as he truly is, that is the treasure in your house. Every room as an expression of the victories that you have in your life, that is the treasure that when people come and visit you in your life, they will look at that treasure and just be astounded by it. They will ask you about it. And when you show them the history of where it came from, that brings life to them. That's your treasure. I can't do that for you. But that's what God wants to stock in your house the house that is held up by his principles that you have to fight for to actually establish. That's what he has for you. And if anybody is telling you anything other than that, that is heresy. God's intention for you is to be your counselor by his spirit that you will find him as he truly is as you walk out your life. every room, all parts of your life. So to land this thing, I know you're going to have the question, okay, how do I do this? There are many things, everybody wants to distill it to a process. And in this, the Bible is actually going to meet your expectations of a process. Amazingly so. If you desire this wisdom that I've been speaking about that becomes the foundation by which your house is built, that is established through understanding, and now through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures, this is what it says.
James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I talked about doors that swing on tiny little hinges. If you hear one thing, hear this one thing today. The hinge that I speak of is in the first six words. If any of you lacks wisdom. It's not about whether you think you're simple or wise. That's not the criteria. The simple criteria, the only criteria stated here is if you lack wisdom, which is for you in your life and your sphere of influence, if you don't think you lack, you won't ask. It is that simple and that tiny of a hinge for your life of the door of whether the doorway to wisdom is going to open unto you. If you believe that in that area of your life, for your family, in your business, of your very life that you live, that I don't know. All I know is this, because I've said this literally to myself as I've prayed. I don't know. I don't know the future. If I make this decision, am I wrong? There's going to be a price to pay. I don't know. God, you have to show me. I don't have it. That's about as real as I can tell you. That in the instances of my life, I had to acknowledge before God, I don't, whatever I need, I don't have. I lack it. I lack wisdom. So I go to you who has this endless ocean of wisdom that desires to be poured out by your spirit to me to give me what I need. And the only thing that will dictate whether that door is open is this hinge of whether I see that I lack. That's it. The invitation of wisdom is so wide, so broad, to the simple, come in. To the wise, increase your learning. All people, all stages of life, in every aspect, the invitation of wisdom is wide open. And the only hinge is, will you ask? And if you think you have it, you won't ask. Proverbs 2, verse 3 says, And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. There is a school of wisdom. And the school of wisdom requires yieldedness. That's it. a tiny hinge and if you say to yourself I lack you will ask you will ask and he is faithful to answer because that's his intention never to be an orphan never to walk alone the very original intention of the heart of God is to be a father to the fatherless Amen.